0: It is a lot better to preach to people in pews than empty pews. Uh, Three years ago, we learned how to do that. No fun, don't ever want to do that again. Now That reminds me of four college students. They they had figured out a way. They had cheated and connived their way all the way through uh, college. They were coming to the end of the semester. They had a big exam in their class. And so they came up with an idea. What they were going to do is they were going to skip the test, not show up, not be there. And they were going to take that extra day To study, then come back the next day and uh, having really extra preparation time, blow it out of the water and just ace it. So that's exactly what they did. They didn't show up. Uh, They um, took the day. The next day, they studied. I mean, and they learned it. They they got it down. And then they uh, showed up the next day and the professor said, man, I, I missed you guys at class yesterday for the test. Man, where were you? And they said, oh, professor, we, uh, we, we had an accident. This was a story they'd come up with. We, we had an accident. The professor said, oh, is everybody okay? And they said, oh, yeah, we were okay. We just, we, we had tra- car trouble. We, we share a car. We share a car together and, and uh, we had a friend who died and so we had to travel all the way back home to, uh, to the funeral. It was a two o'clock funeral and so we got out of there about 435 o'clock. We drove off all the way back and as we're coming back in that night we hit a rock we blow the tire we're on the side of the road we're we're calling an uber we're calling a record we're trying to get the tire fixed nobody's open up that time of the night we get a hotel we we get up the next morning they don't open till later we get in there they have to order the tire they didn't have the exact tire they had to order it we had to wait for it to come in they we, we, we finally got the tire put on but by the time we made it back uh, the test was over the professor was like man, I, man i'm so sorry We went through all of that um uh, are y'all ready for the test? And he said, yes, sir. Uh, we've studied. We're ready for the test. He said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to put all of you in in a different room. So each one of you is going to be in a different room to take this test. And this test is going to be a little different than the test that your fellow classmates took. It's going to be a, maybe a, even a little bit easier. And uh, so each one of those guys walked into a room. And in that, in that room, there was one little sheet of paper uh, on a desk in the middle of that room. And there was just one question on On that piece of paper, and and here was the question, on that piece of paper, which tire popped? (laughs) I'm just really glad that you're here this morning, and next Sunday I don't have to ask you which tire popped. Last Sunday, we began a series of studies on what are known as the spiritual disciplines. That's what we do virtually every January and February here at Abilene. We, we give our time and attention to starting and strengthening those holy habits that, that help us to build our spiritual muscles. Things like Bible study and prayer and worship and discipleship and evangelism and giving and service. Don Whitney is a professor, I think, at Southern Seminary, and uh, he's written a lot along the lines of spiritual disciplines. And, and he wrote these words. It's amazing how he explains the goal of practicing the spiritual disciplines. He writes All our spiritual disciplines should be practiced in pursuit of Christ's likeness. We pursue outward conformity to Christ's likeness as we practice the same disciplines he practiced. More importantly, we pursue intimacy with Jesus and the inner transformation to Christ's likeness when we look to him through the spiritual disciplines. Now, last Sunday, we began by looking and learning how to move forward together in Bible studies. Now, why do we start there? Because that's the most important aspect of the Christian's life. There is no spiritual discipline, no spiritual discipline, no holy habit, no spiritual practice that is more important in your Christian life than the daily consistent, intentional, personal, spiritual intake of God's Word. There is no substitute for it. Not conferences, not bumper stickers, not social media memes, not classes, not seminars, not retreats, not lectures, nothing. There is no way that you will ever be a healthy, growing Christian if you neglect the milk and the meat of Scripture. That's why we started with Scripture last week. But after Bible intake, the most important spiritual discipline in the life of a Christian is a powerful, personal, consistent prayer life. I've got a buddy named Daniel Dickard. He's a young pastor uh, who's actually moving from North Carolina to South Carolina. His dad, Wayne, has preached here in the past. I I love the Dickard family. He is the president of the Pastors Conference this year for the Southern Baptist Convention. And he wrote this past week as I'm preparing and praying over a sermon on prayer. uh, Daniel posted this statement, and I love it. It's absolutely spot on. He says, there are many things that we can do but there is one thing that we must do pray pray often and pray without ceasing or you can, you can look at it another way. So my mom, so when, when I was growing up, my, my mom used to cross-stitch. Anybody here still cross-stitch? Can I see your hands? Anybody here cross-stitch? How many of y'all were raised in a family and, and your mom cross stitched? Can I see your hands? And so if you still cross-stitch, can, can I say this right here? We don't know what to do with those things. It feels wrong to get rid of them, but we're not putting them up. And so, but my mom had crossed this, this little picture of this little girl and uh, she's kneeling beside her bed. Her hands are clasped in prayer and underneath it are these words, prayer makes things happen. Prayer makes things happen or you can turn it around. John Wesley said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. How many of you all know that when we pray for people, things happen? Can I see your hands? How many of you all know that when we pray for people, circumstances change? It's true. Diagnosis can change. Decisions can change. Outcomes can change. Why? Because prayer changes things. And so this morning, we're going to be thinking about and talking about how to move forward together in our prayer life by looking at what most people refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Now, maybe you were raised in a church and where you said this prayer every week, you recited it every week, and, uh, and you call it the Lord's Prayer. It is really not the Lord's Prayer because Jesus isn't praying here as much as he is teaching his disciples how to pray. Because over in Luke chapter 11, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him a question. And they had watched his prayer life. They had been within eyesight and earshot of Jesus had prayed. They had, they had seen Jesus work mighty miracles. They, 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 they understood. They watched as he had this close communion with God and the time he would spend in prayer. And so they come to Jesus in Luke chapter 11 and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray can you imagine the privilege that they have to just sit and watch and hear jesus as he prays and communes with the father well that motivated again lord teach us to pray in response to that prayer jesus comes here in matthew chapter 6 just just look down there cast your eyes upon it jesus begins to talk and teach about prayer He talks about the proper attitude and the manner of prayer, that we should not pray in public to be seen by everybody else, but we should pray in private, what Francis Dixon referred to as the secret place of prayer. He talks about the content of prayer, that we shouldn't use vain repetitions like the pagans do when they pray, but rather we should pray with sincerity and humility. He talks about the importance of faith in prayer, that we should pray trusting God's ability and willingness to answer our prayers. And then when you get to verse 9, Jesus shares a model prayer, or you, you could call it a pattern prayer, as an example of the proper way To pray. And again, he didn't say, This is what you should pray. Jesus didn't say, Look, you are to pray this prayer word for word every single time you pray. No, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 6 is, Look, You can take this prayer and you can use this prayer as a model. You can use it as a pattern that gives all of the elements of a prayer that gets answered by the Father. Let's read it. Look there in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse number 9. If you have found your way there, say, "Uh Uh uh-huh. Thank you. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Jesus said, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name Many of you all here this morning, you could stand up and recite it from memory. But here's what I want to do is is I want to take this model prayer. And I want us to work our way through it phrase by phrase line by line section by section And I want us to break it down into a simple memorable pattern That's what dr. Rogers did for me years ago break it down into a simple pattern that you can use in your own prayer time To help you grow and mature and develop and move forward in your personal prayer life So if you're taking notes here this morning, just jot down first of all, let's look at the person of this prayer Who can pray this kind of prayer that jesus teaches and models? For us here in Matthew chapter 6, who he tells us. He said, It is only those who can pray, Our Father in heaven. Now, I love it because I love looking out at faces all morning long. And so when, when I make that statement, there, there are people in every service, just like just, just then, there are those who go, Awesome. That means that anybody can pray this prayer because God is the father of everybody, because God is the creator of everybody. Look right here. You're half right. You're half right. God is the creator of everybody. That's right. But he is not the father of all because the Bible teaches that that not everybody belongs to the family of God. We read about this, Old Testament, New Testament alike. uh, We we are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by what we do. And when we choose to sin, we are demonstrating the fact, we are displaying the fact, we are proving that God is not our father, but rather our father is the devil. That's what Jesus told a group of religious people the Pharisees one day he said in John chapter 8 he said if God were your father you would love me you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do John over the years people have said pastor I just wish you'd be more like Jesus really I've never called you the son-in-law the devil or the son of the devil or anything like that I've never seen anything like that at all and so he said down there, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They broke fellowship with God. They lost their relationship with God. And as a result of that, they were placed outside the Garden of Eden. And God had to provide a plan of redemption to reconcile Adam and Eve to himself so that they could once again be called children of God and pray our Father. So when a person is born, you need to know this. When a person is born of a father and a mother, they are born with a body and a soul and a spirit. That's what Paul teaches that over in Thessalonians. We are body, soul, and spirit. So we are a body. We know what that is, right? How many of y'all touch? We, we, know, we know what this is. The body is that thing that you've been taken to the gym ever since January 1st. The the body is that thing that you're trying to lose weight, that you're following Noom or the Weight Watchers or whatever else, the new thing, and keto, whatever. And so we know what a body is. But then we're not just body, we are a soul. That is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Uh, The Greek word for for soul is suke. It's where we get psychologists or psychological from. And then there is the spirit. The, The spirit is the seat and the center of our inner human life. Without a spirit, we are nothing more than flesh and bones. And until we come to know Jesus and are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, our spirit is dead. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, he said, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so only those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, only those who have been made alive, the theological term is quickened, by the Holy Spirit of God. Only those who have received a new nature have a spirit that is alive towards God. That's why Paul says that before we're saved, we are dead in trespasses and sins. That means that we are dead to God. We are dead to the things of God. And so there are people who repeat this prayer every single Sunday. There are people who pray this prayer every single night before they go to bed. And and, and it doesn't mean anything more than just a warm fuzzy or some sort of religious ritual because God is not their father. And so before you can pray this prayer and make it the pattern of your own personal prayer life, you've got to ask yourself this question, is God my heavenly Father? Am I a child of God? You say, it's a great question, Pastor. How can I know? How can I know if I am a child of God? Well, in John chapter 1, he tells us. So you got John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, talking about Jesus. And then you get down to verse number 11, and it says that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So the question is, who has a right to become the children of God? Who has the right to be called the children of God? Only those who have Believed and received Jesus. And so the whole idea in this first phrase of this prayer is wrapped up in the concept of a family. And who makes up this heavenly family that Jesus alludes to here in verse number 9? Only those who have believed on the name and received what Jesus did for them on the cross. Now, if you'll look back there, are y'all still with me this morning? If you'll look back there right before this prayer in verse number 8. Notice what Jesus says there. He says, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So any daddies in the room this morning, if you're a daddy, raise your hand. You're a daddy, raise your hand. Come on, you'd love to raise your hand. Not as much as granddaddies, but you, you, you love to raise your hand. So let's suppose that you're sitting there on your porch on a Saturday afternoon and your kid comes running out of the house, runs across the street. Your neighbor's out there working in their yard. He runs up to your neighbor, throws his arms around your neighbor, calls him daddy and starts asking for lunch money, starts asking for, for presents. Or you're at the mall and you're at the bottom of the escalator and there's this guy that comes off the escalator you've never seen before in your life. And uh, your, your kid runs over to this guy, throws their arms around them, calls him daddy and again starts asking for all kinds of stuff. Let me ask you a question. Is that going to bug you? Now, some of you all are saying, no, that's exactly what I tell them to do, how to raise money when we're at the mall. (laughs) Well, that's not God. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that at all. So here's what I'm saying. They ought to be coming to you. They ought to be asking you for stuff because you're their father and they are your child. Don't ever forget what I told you last week, that this book, the Bible, is a love letter to those who are in the family of God. That's why the natural man does not discern. He cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. And so man is a body and a soul and a spirit, and everybody has a spirit that is dead towards spiritual things until they receive Jesus. But then the Spirit of God comes in, and they're given a new nature. That old dead spirit is brought to life. Now they're they're able to live spiritually. Now they're able to communicate spiritually now they're able to understand spiritually because they have spiritual eyes they have spiritual ears now they can have spiritual growth and spiritual development but to have all of that you have to have a spiritual birth there has to be a spiritual beginning but once you've come to faith in Christ and once you've been born again into the family of God now you can come directly to your father and cry out as you pray our father in heaven that's the person of the prayer But then, number two, there's the purpose of this prayer. Why do we pray? We pray to seek and secure God's will. That's why we pray, to seek and secure the will of God. Look at verse 10. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there are a lot of elements and aspects to prayer but according to Jesus, the primary purpose of prayer is so that the will of God is done on this earth and in your life. If you're taking notes, jot down 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. The Bible says there, now this is the confidence that we have in him, if we, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Watch this. God answers Prayer according to his will, not our will. Prayer is to get God's will done on earth, not to get our will done in heaven. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of God's willingness. Prayer isn't trying to get God to do what we want him to do. Prayer is getting in on what God is already up to. It is finding out what God wants to do and then getting in the flow of the will and purpose of God. It is knowing God's will and claiming God's best. My pastor Adrian Rogers put it this way. He said, the prayer that gets to heaven is the prayer that starts in heaven. The prayer that gets to heaven is the prayer that starts in heaven. One of the questions that I'm asked most as a pastor, probably the number one, and even some of you all have asked me this over the years. The number one question that I'm asked as a pastor is this. How can I know the will of God? How, how can I know God's will for my life? How can I know God's will for my family? How can I know the will of God? Anybody ever asked that question? It's a good question. How can I know God's will? So, Take out some pen. Take out some paper. Take out a pen. Open up your app, your note app on your iPhone. Just if you have a Samsung, I don't have a clue what to do with that. Uh, And so, but open up your iPhone. And uh, and jot down. If you want to know, how do you discover? How do you discern the will of God? Three little simple steps. Number one, search the Scripture. Number one, just search the Scripture. God's will is primarily presented in the pages of the Bible. There is no way that you're going to know the will of God if you do not know the Word of God. So the very first thing you you got to do is you've got to search the Scripture. Number two, you've got to surrender to the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul talks about praying in the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, I believe it's talking about how God's Holy Spirit will reveal God's will to us through His Word as we surrender our will to His will. And that's really where the power of prayer comes in you search the scriptures you surrender to the Holy Spirit and then thirdly you submit to the Father you ever heard somebody say something like this I just wish God would tell me what his will is so I can know whether or not I wanted to do it <laughs> you ever heard somebody say something like I have pastor I need to figure out what God's will is to see if I want to do it it doesn't work that way God is never going to reveal his will to someone who isn't willing already in advance to do whatever it is that God wants them to do. And by the way, God is God. He knows, right? He knows. In John 7 verse 17, the Bible says this, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Let me give you the quick translation of that. If anyone chooses to do the will of God, he will know and he will discover the will of God. The only way to know God's will is to submit to God's will. I told the early service, and so y'all may not know this, but the guys up in the sound booth, they are the absolute best. And, uh, <clears throat> and so years and years and years ago, my, my iPad died twice on a Sunday morning. And, uh, and, uh, I, and I had said years ago, years before that, rather, I'd, I told Ryan, I said, every Sunday just print out a copy of my sermon and put it in the, uh, in the pulpit. And that had been a long time since I'd asked that. And it died in the middle of the service that morning. And as I'm preaching, how many of y'all were here that day? I, I was preaching, I was in a, And I felt paper. I pulled it out. Had no idea whether it was the right sermon or not, but I pulled it out. And so this morning, I reached in there. I didn't have this paper, but I needed a sheet of paper. So, and so when, when I was growing up, going to youth camps, they would have this practice that we would do, and they would pull out a sheet of blank paper. And they would ask us to sign our name at the bottom of that sheet of paper and then hand it back to God and say, God, here's my signature. You fill in the rest. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, here is my signature at the bottom of the page. God, you fill in the rest. That's the way we have to pray. We have to pray, God, I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. And when you will approach prayer that way, I'm telling you, it will absolutely revolutionize your prayer life. Number three, notice the provision of the prayer. Because there is absolutely no doubt that God knows our needs. And he's promised to meet our needs. But we're still supposed to come. So people say, Pastor, God knows everything. God knows everything. God knows what I'm going to pray before I pray it. Why do I have to pray it? Because God loves spending time with his kids. God loves for us to talk to him. God loves for us to spend time with him. And so God wants us to come to him. Look, look in verse 11. He says down there, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Did did, did you notice what Jesus didn't say? It's kind of always kind of bugged me, but Jesus didn't say, give us this, give us our monthly bread or our weekly bread. And Jesus didn't say, hey, God's going to tell you everything you need to know for his will for the rest of your life. That's not what he said at all. He says down there, we're to pray for daily bread. Why do you think that is? Because as you study the Bible, you're going to learn that the, the great men and women of God, they learned the lesson of daily bread, daily dependence on the person and the provision of Jesus. And I think the greatest illustration of this in all the pages of your Bible is found back in Exodus where you have the manna. The children of Israel wandering in the wilderness 40 years and they've got to have something to eat. And so there's this bread-like stuff that, this bread stuff that comes down. is called manna. Which, by the way, you know what the word manna means? What is it? And that, that's, that's what the word means. What is it? Uh, and, and so they walked out and said, what is it? Well, it's what is it? Well, no, no, what is it? Anyway, uh, and, and so you had this manna, and they would go out every single day. They would pick up this bread, and they could only pick up enough for that day because if you're, if any, oh, any hoarders in here? Anybody married to a hoarder? Don't, don't, do not raise your hand. I don't have time for marriage counseling. And so, and, and so but, but it was a picture of Jesus. You say, how's manna, how's bread, a picture of Jesus? It's round symbolizing his perfection. It's white symbolizing his purity. It was on the ground symbolizing that as you stooped down to pick it up, you had to humble yourself like Jesus did. It kept them alive symbolizing the life that we have in Christ. And then again, it had to be gathered every single day just enough for that day or it would spoil symbolizing the need that we have for Jesus every single day. And God was teaching his people a lesson. He's teaching them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because they literally had to look to heaven every single day to supply their need. Now, I don't think that he's just talking here about physical food. I think he's talking here about emotional needs and spiritual needs and physical needs, needs for wisdom and discernment. And he says that as we rely on him every day, he's going to supply our need Paul says in Philippians he says and my God shall supply all your needs. Say need." say need and my God shall supply all your need not your greed but all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus but can I just say this aren't you glad that God doesn't just meet our needs he gives us a whole lot of our wants he gives us a whole lot of our desires those things that make life, life a little nicer a little easier a little bit more enjoyable Number four is the pardon of the prayer. We are to pray with, with pure hearts that have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That, that's a principle that's taught all the way throughout the Bible. You, you've got David who prayed in Psalm 66 verse 16. He says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. Isaiah said about the people of, of, of Israel, he says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So the question is, Why? Does Jesus talk about forgiveness in this prayer? Because if we're going to come to Jesus, we've got to come with a pure heart, a heart that has been touched by the grace of God that has forgiven those who have sinned against us just like God has forgiven us for our sins against him. If God is going to forgive us, we've got to forgive others. And if you've been forgiven, you must be forgiving. And that's really only possible through the grace and the mercy of god it's it's only the miracle of god's grace that we are able to release that person who has sinned against us let me ask you a question anybody here ever had somebody do you wrong can i see your hands you ever had somebody do you wrong come on raise your hands so how do you know how do you know when you've forgiven them how do you know when you've forgiven that person who has done you wrong here's how when what they did to you that offense no longer controls you that's how you know it no longer controls your thoughts it no longer controls your emotions it no longer controls your actions you have forgiven them you have released them And until you do that, you really can't pray the way that you're supposed to pray. One of the essential elements and conditions of powerful prayer is to be able to pray from a cleansed heart that has forgiven those who have sinned against us, just like God has forgiven us. And until you've done that, it's going to hinder your prayer life, and it's going to hold you back from from praying the way you ought to pray. Number five, real quickly, the protection of the prayer, verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of y'all brought your old King James Bible with you this morning. Come on, raise it, come on, raise it. You know you want, you've been waiting for months for me to ask, raise your old King James up, raise it up there. It's a great translation. Now, it gets this wrong. Because in the old King James, it says something like this, deliver us from evil, right? Deliver us from evil, right? No, the better translation is, deliver us from the evil one. Here's why that matters. Our enemy isn't just evil, our enemy is the evil one. A lot of folks will admit that there's evil in this world, but they don't want to admit that there's a force or a source or a person or a power behind evil. But Jesus says, you've got to be aware that there is an evil one out there. Peter talks about this roaring lion who's seeking to devour. That's who we pray. Prayer is warfare against the devil. That's what prayer is. Prayer is warfare against the devil. When you go into the secret place of prayer, you are going into battle. That's why Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the whole armor of God because you're going into battle. You're going to war. Watch this. And the church, are y'all still there this morning? The church is an army that moves forward on its knees. I love what D.L. Moody said. D.L. Moody said, a Christian on their knees can see farther than a philosopher can see standing on their tiptoes. Because on our knees, we combat the power of sin. We bind the demons of hell. We overcome the forces of Satan. You can read about all that in Ephesians chapter 6. But prayer is the battlefield of the Christian life. That's so why my buddies down at Sherwood and the Kendricks brothers, they produced that movie called War Room. That, Prayer is where the battle is won or lost. You're praying for your son. You're praying for your daughter. You've got a family issue. You've got a health issue, financial issue. Prayer is where the battle is won or lost. And you will never experience any more victory in your life than the time and the attention that you devote to your personal prayer life. One last thing, we're done. Notice the praise of the prayer. It ends with a note of praise. Verse 13, for yours is the kingdom And the power and the glory forever amen we don't pray for our glory we pray for his glory and you've got to always remember as you're praying keep it in mind the kingdom of God and the power of God and the glory of God that's why we pray Now, let me admit what I already know. That is a lot to digest. Some of y'all are going, I quit on the first point. I get it. It's a lot. It's a seminary course in prayer. So if you're one of those ones that are just saying, "Can, can you just help me? this week to pray pull out your pens pull out your piece of paper get out your notes open it back up real practically. let me give you three prayers you can always pray three prayers you can always pray just jot these down simple number one lord search me you can always pray that prayer that's what that's what the bible says lord i think it was david lord search me and know my heart See if there's any hidden wickedness in me. You can always pray, Lord, search me. Here's the second prayer. You can always pray, Lord, save me. Remember Peter walking on the water? Gets his eyes off of Jesus, gets it on the storm, begins to sink. And what, what does he cry out? Lord, save me. You can always pray, Lord, save me. And then Lastly. You can always pray, Lord, send me. Lord, send me. Isaiah records, the Lord said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Send me. And you can always pray, Lord, search me. You can always pray, Lord, save me. You can always pray, Lord, send me.